Lord, we recognize that how we relate to people is so critical. We're going to talk about that this morning. And so, Father, I pray today, through all of life's uh, various challenges that come our way, disappointments, heartache, a sense of, you know, moments, misunderstanding, relational tensions. Lord, I pray today that your Holy Spirit would just draw us close to you, that you would invade our hearts and minds today, that you would speak into our innermost being. And Lord, I pray, even as the psalmist prayed, search us, O God, and see if there be any wicked way in me. And lead us into the way everlasting. Father, I pray today that you would instruct, that you would correct, that you would encourage, that you would strengthen. Lord, that you would bring joy into our lives, that you would give us hope, you would deliver us from anxious thoughts, oh God, that you would heal broken relationships. Lord, we're praying today for your miracle working power. And as much as it lies within us, oh God, help us to live at peace with all people. And for those that that seems humanly impossible, Give us a right attitude. Give us a loving heart, a forgiving heart, a praying heart. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. You may be seated. I'm going to have you turn this morning to the book of Philippians. I know I'm going to just deviate from our series on Mark, but I just felt so uh, moved to move in this direction today. Retired U.S. Marine Corps General Charles Kerlack tells of a time as a non-believer when he was first confronted by the testimony of a person who was a follower of Jesus. He said, 35 years ago, I was a young second lieutenant just graduating from the Naval Academy. I'd been married all of two weeks. And after I graduated, my wife and I went down to Quantico, Virginia. That was the home of the basic school where officers learned about how to function as, a, as an officer in the military. He said, at that time, I thought I was a cross between John Wayne and Tom Cruise. Now, some of you are a little older know who these people are. Tom Cruise, we know who he is, but John Wayne, he's an oldie. Because I was married, he said, uh, eventually they went into a special training. They were separated from their spouses. So he ended up having a roommate, another married guy, and his name was John Listerman. And John, he said, was an amazing human being. He said he kind of exuded goodness. You know, if I asked him for his arm, he would have said, where do you want me to cut it off? At the wrist, the elbow? He was that kind of a person. John was a true Christian. That meant nothing to me other than, hey, what a nice guy. I guess that Christian stuff must seem, you know, pretty good for John. You know how people think. Upon graduating from the basic school, John and I went to Camp Pempleton, California, where we joined the same battalion preparing to go to Vietnam. And I saw then another side of John Listerman. He was a tremendous leader. He was very proficient. He was strong. He was dynamic, but he was also, uh, you know, a very caring person. He loved people, and the people responded back to him. His troops were deeply committed to him. He was literally a Marine's Marine. And on December morning in 1965, John and I went to war. John Listerman's war lasted exactly one day. We were on patrol moving down a trail through the jungle. We came around a corner and we ran into an ambush. John was in the lead. He took the first round, a 50 caliber round, struck him in his kneecap. The crack was so loud it sounded like a mortar. 
and it threw him up in the air, and as he was dropping, a second round hit him right below the heart and exited out of his side. I was wounded also, but nowhere near as badly as John was, and I saw John about 30 meters away. He was on his back. His leg was now detached from his body. And as I crawled up to him, I wanted to say, are you okay? Can I do anything? But before I could do anything or say anything, he turned his head to me and he said, how are you doing, Chucker? Are you okay? I said, yes, John, I'm okay. And he said, are my men safe? I said, John, your people are okay. At that point, he turned his head and looked at the sky and he repeated over and over again, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for caring for my people. Thank you for caring for me. He said, I was so dumbfounded. John Listerman and Charles Kurlak were later evacuated, and Kurlak eventually became a Christian because of John's testimony. What we are grateful for says so much what is transpiring within us. John Listerman's heart of gratitude and thanksgiving to God for his fellow men in his platoon speaks absolute volumes to the passage of Scripture that I want us to look at today. It's one of the areas of thanksgiving we often neglect, thanking God for the people he brings into our lives. Probably one of the most defining moments in the ministry of the Apostle Paul is found in the book of Acts chapter 16, where Paul has a vision from a man of Macedonia seeking help. Many scholars refer to this as the Macedonian call, and it's a critical moment when the gospel, instead of staying in Asia, moves on to Europe and becomes a dominant force in the history and the development of what we would call today Western civilization. But few of us may realize as the difficult events that led to this moment in Paul's life. This moment came after a very low moment. It came after a time of bitter disappointment where, his, where he and his mentor and his best friend in ministry, Barnabas, actually severed their relationship over a decision regarding a young man by the name of John Mark. Choosing to take different paths, Paul discovered God closing the doors of ministry opportunities. And finally, while he was at a place called Troas, Paul's team pondered their future. There, God revealed a new opportunity, and Paul received a vision from God. And out of this opportunity was birthed a new lifetime friendship that would encourage Paul again and again. It was at Troas where Paul first met Luke, who's the author of the book of Acts and the Gospel of Luke. He is described by the Apostle Paul in one of his letters as his dear friend and physician. In Colossians chapter 4 and verse 14, he said, Our dear friend Luke, the doctor, and Demas send greetings. Luke was one of the few individuals who remained loyal to the Apostle Paul right to the very end. You know, it's interesting when you read 2 Timothy, uh, most of the people that had worked with the Apostle Paul by this time were either busy doing ministry elsewhere or, you know, they had even abandoned, you know, walking with God. You know, it's a very painful experience. If you've been in ministry a long time, you watch how people who have begun well can end poorly. And he says there in uh, Luke chapter 4, uh, 2 Timothy 4.11, only Luke is with me, he said. Get Mark and bring him with you because he's helpful to me in my ministry. So 
What would have prompted this meeting of Paul and Luke here in the area of Troas? We don't know. Bible's silent. But we do know that Luke was a doctor. And I don't know if Paul had some sort of issue in his body where he had to go see a physician. I don't know how they connected as individuals. But it's very interesting that, uh, that Luke and Paul become a part of a team. As a matter of fact, the text of Scripture we're going to look at here in Acts 16, verse 6, says something very revealing. And I want to point this out to you because sometimes when we read the Bible, we miss the little things. How many know what I'm talking about? We just kind of don't pick up on some things. But let me show you something that you may not have noticed before. And it starts here in Acts 16.6. It says, Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. Interesting statement, huh? God stopping someone from saying something. I think we have to be kind of sensitive to what God is trying to communicate to us. You know, there's sometimes we need to say things, and there's other times we need to be silent. How many have discovered that as a Christian, you know? And here the Holy Spirit is hindering them from actually moving in a, in a direction. You think, hey, just preaching the gospel anywhere counts. I think we have to be a little more sensitive than that. Then it says, when they came to the border of Mycenae, they tried to enter Bithany, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them. In other words, there was some impediment that keep them from moving in this direction. And so they passed by Mycenae, and they went down to Troas. Troas is actually a coastal community on the Aegean Sea in present-day Turkey. Some of us actually traveled there. We went to Turkey a number of years ago. It says, during the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia. Macedonia is actually in Greece. It's kind of the northern provinces where actually Alexander the Great came from. His dad was Philip the Macedonian. So it was in that part of the world. And this vision was saw a man standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready. Now notice the pronoun changed. He was mentioning before Paul's companions, they. Now in this verse, he uses the word we. In other words, somewhere in this moment in Troas, Luke joined Paul's team. It says, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Now, what is really fascinating, and you may not know this, is that the first community they arrived at in the province of Macedonia was the city of Philippi which was a Roman colony. Now, you say, well, what's so unusual about that? Well, let me point out something to you. Philippi was maybe you know, an important city, but it was not the most important city in the province of uh, Macedonia. The city of Thessalonica was actually the most important. It was more strategic. As a matter of fact, if you study Paul's life very carefully, you'll notice that he always went to Jews first and then to Gentiles. How many know that's true about Paul? Romans chapter 1, verse 16 teaches that. He said, I preach the gospel to the Jew first, then to the Gentile. As a matter of fact, Thessalonica had a very large Jewish population. Philippi had very few Jewish people. As a matter of fact, as we read the scripture, there was only a little prayer meeting by a riverside where a few God-fearers, and mainly women were gathered. In other words, there was not even 10 Jewish men in the city of Philippi, because if they had 10 Jewish men, they would have had a synagogue. 
Now, why didn't Paul just stay on the boat? Because the ship that he was sailing on, yes, stopped at Philippi first, but then, you know, went on to Thessalonica. Why didn't he just stay on that, that, that boat and go to Thessalonica first? Because Paul's usual habit was to be very strategic. He usually went to the more strategic center. And here's where we get a little insight. William Ramsey, the noted archaeologist, maintains that there's a touch of pride in Luke's description of the city of Philippi because he was native to that city. As a matter of fact, the city had a famous school of medicine which sent its, its adherents throughout the Greek-speaking world. And Luke came from the city of Philippi. Isn't that amazing? Now, how many know that when people normally hear the good news about Jesus, what's the first inclination inside of them? They want to tell the people they love this wonderful news about how they can receive eternal life, how they can receive forgiveness of sins, how their life can be transformed. And I'm wondering in this situation if Luke did not influence this team to stop first in the town of Philippi in order to connect with people that he might know of. It, this is just a supposition. We don't know for certain. But it's interesting. Uh, could it be the influence of Luke desiring the missionaries to come first to his hometown? You know, do we have any doubts as to the power of, of, of friends and the influence that friends have on our lives? I think God uses that source to touch our lives. But you know, one of the great needs we have, and I always say this to people, is that we choose the right kind of friends. Matter of fact, I'm reminded of a little story of a farmer who was upset with a flock of crows in his field. And uh, he was so upset with them, he loaded his shotgun one day and he crawled unseen along the fence row, determined, you know, to inhibit or to scare them off or at least, you know, just get them away from his field. But he also had this very sociable parrot who made friends with everybody. And seeing the flock of crows, the parrot flew over and joined them. The farmer, however, only saw crows. And so he, he, he took a shot, fired, and crawled over to the fence to pick up the fallen crow that he had hit. And lo and behold, it was his parrot. Badly ruffled with a broken wing, but still alive. Tenderly, the farmer carried the parrot home where his children met him. Seeing that their pet was injured, they tearfully said, what happened, Papa? And before he could answer, the parrot spoke up, bad company. <laughs> now I say all of that, that to point out something. Friendship is a very powerful element in our lives. You know, we're, how many know we're social beings? And there's a tremendous need to relate to other people. And so it's very important, the people we hang with and, and the people we're influencing, the people we're trying to shape their lives. And so we see this. Paul has this beautiful team of missionaries working with him to reach the city. You know, someone's pointed out a false friend is like a shadow. As long as there's sunshine, he sticks close by. But the minute you step into the shade, he disappears. Not so Paul's friends from the city of Philippi. This church... This unusual church. You know, it's so amazing to me. This initial foray into Europe proves to be a very strategic decision. Not because the city was so strategic, but the people in that church would over and over again be the one church that would help the Apostle Paul throughout his life and ministry. Isn't that amazing? There was a connection there, and I think it's so powerful. You know, our, 
Here in the opening chapter of the book of Philippians, we find three expressions of thanksgiving that reveal not only Paul's heart but all towards these individuals, but also his heart of thanksgiving towards God. You know, I'm, I'm going to say it this way. Our love to God, our gratitude and thanks to God can only be measured by the way we treat other people. How many know it's easy to say we love God? But it's a lot harder to say we love the person who's irritating us. How many know it's a lot harder to love people than it is to love God? How many have kind of found that out? It's a lot easier to love God, whom we do not see, than to love people who we do see and sometimes annoy us. Isn't that true? Yeah, I think so. But you know what? I think our love to God can only be measured by the way we treat other people. As a matter of fact, God, John says this. How can you say you love God whom you do not see and hate your brother whom you see? He challenges us with that. I would argue that the way we're treating people is the true measure of our love for God. That's what the premise of the sermon is. You and I can tell me, you can tell me, Pastor, I really love God, but if you're treating people poorly... I would challenge your whole thinking about how much you really love God. Isn't it fascinating? When Jesus left the planet, he said in the upper room that last night before he was to be crucified, do you know what he said about, he said, the world will know the true followers of Christ how. How will people in society be able to distinguish the true follower of Jesus Christ? What is the one characteristic that would describe the true follower of Jesus? By how we show love one to another. That's the true test of the Christians. As a matter of fact, I would even argue that you could say, I believe in God. I say, that's awesome. But you know what? True faith matures and it's demonstrated by love. That's when we've really grown up. We're really exhibiting love. So I want to take a look at these three expressions of our gratitude towards God. And the first one is for the believers that God has brought into our lives. Who are the people you are thankful for? And for most of us, we could probably say, well, I'm thankful for my earthly family. Yeah, most of us could be, say that I'm thankful for the people you know, I, I grew up with, my parents. But you know what? This is the part I really like. God brings us, when we come to faith in Christ, into his family. And the moment I become a Christian, I am now part of a big family. I'm adopted. And the people who are followers of Jesus now become my brothers and my sisters. Isn't that amazing? So if you feel alone, you don't have to because you're part of the family. You know, when I was at first a Christian... We used to sing this chorus, I'm so glad I'm part of the family of God. You know, how many members singing that a long time ago? You know, I've been washed in the fountain, cleansed by his blood, join heirs with Jesus as we travel the sod. I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. You know, it goes on to say we call, we call people brothers and sisters around here. You know, I'll tell you what brought healing in my life because it was pretty broken when I came to Christ was the love that I felt for my brothers and sisters in Christ. They brought healing into my soul. You say, well, didn't God do that? I said, yeah, he did through people. God brought his love into my soul through the love I felt from the people of God. 
Here in Philippians, Paul was thanking God for the friends he had now made, fellow partners in the gospel. You know, how many know in a human family there are moments of tension? I grew up in a family. I had siblings. There were moments we didn't always get along 100%. How many can relate to what I'm talking about? Anybody have siblings? Do you ever have a little squabble with a sibling? Come on now, let's be honest. Is that part of life? Sure, we're immature. We're growing up, right? They took this. How come they got that, you know? You know, am I, am I talking to the right group here? You guys all have your halos on straight, you know? You're looking so good this morning. You're acting like we never had a difference in the world. But you know, unfortunately, you know, that kind of translates into how we treat each other as we get older and, and we become part of the church family. And, you know, and we can become very, uh, we can have jealousies, we can be indifferent, we can gossip, we can backbite, we can criticize, we can judge people. Come on, isn't that part of what happens? And why a lot of people get turned off in the church family because you know, maybe they felt treated, mistreated, on and on it goes. Isn't that true? Yeah, we have this situation. Why am I bringing all this up? Difference come to the forefront, and how we handle those moments. Is forgiveness exhibited and granted? Do we seek to be reconciled with others? You know, one, healthy relationships are one of the greatest blessings of this life. If you have meaningful relationships, you are a rich person. Come on, you guys. You know, let me ask you a question. When you have ought in a relationship with someone you love, when they're, when, when, let's say you're, you and your spouse are, are having a difficulty, is that difficult? Does that affect you emotionally? Does that mean that you're at your best, that you feel happy and joyous? Or, you know, does that, you know, you just feel like, you know what, I, I think I need to get this thing straightened out. I feel a little bit disleveled. I don't, I don't, I don't feel like I'm, I'm flowing in my relationship. I even, it affects my relationship with God. I'm affected. But let's take a look at what Paul says in chapter 1 of Philippians in verse 3. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all of my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. Let me ask you a question. Do you pray for the people around you? Do you pray for those that you love? Do you pray for the people in the church family? Do you pray for those that you're frustrated with? Do you pray for those that, you know, encourage you? Do you pray for those that are over you? Do you pray for those that are among you? I'm just asking the questions. Paul certainly did. And he says, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who begun a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Who is Paul thanking? He's thanking God. But he's thanking God for the partnership or their participation in the gospel. It was something that they shared together. It was, it was you know, they had all received the same gift of eternal life, but they wanted to see this gift given to other people. I'm going to make a shocking statement. I said it this morning. You know, we could all worship God independently. How many know that's true? You know, we have one meter between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. We all, you know, can, we're all priests under the Most High God. We all have a personal relationship with Christ. We can all worship God independently. So why does God call us together? So that we can encourage each other. So that we can stimulate and motivate each other for good works. You know, 
Do you know that you and I are incomplete apart from each other? God designed it that way. He is the head, we are the body. If you and I are part of the body, how do we function apart from our brothers and sisters? And the answer is, we cannot. We need to learn this lesson. And in North America, we are in violation of this truth over and over again because we have so many rich resources, we assume that we can live independently. We can watch church on TV even. And you know, that's okay if I'm sick, but that does not build relationships. And folks, I'm going to say to you, I would even question a person's salvation if they're neglecting building relationship. Because it's very easy to be spiritual when I have nobody else around me. But you know, my spirituality is tested when somebody ignores me or somebody irritates me or annoys me. Then I find out how really spiritual I am. You know? There's too many people thinking they're super spiritual until they're in a body and there's tension and difficulty and challenge. And then we get to see the true measure of your metal. We get to see who you really are. So, Paul continues his ministry. You know, it's interesting. When he's in Corinth, which is in the southern part of Greece, that's the province of Acacia, he writes this, this letter and he says to them, Uh, Was it a sin for me to lower myself in order to elevate you by preaching the gospel of God to you free of charge? He's talking to the Corinthians. I robbed other churches by receiving support from them so as to serve you. And when I was with you and needed something, I was not a burden to anyone. For the brothers who came from Macedonia, that's where Philippi was, by the way, supplied what I needed. I have kept myself from being a burden to you in any way and will continue to do so. In other words, This church at Philippi kept supporting the Apostle Paul's needs. Amazing. As a matter of fact, he goes down here in Philippians chapter 4 and he says this, Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. And then he says, Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I first set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me, excuse me, in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid again and again when I was in need. Not that I'm looking for a gift, but I'm looking for what may be credited to your account. I have received full payment and even more. I'm amply supplied. And now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, they are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. You know what? Paul said, I'm rejoicing in you guys because you have demonstrated your love to me over and over and over again. Not because I was receiving, but because it showed me how much you cared about me. As a matter of fact, right from the very beginning when the church was started, we read the story of one of the business ladies in the community, Lydia, and it says in Acts 16, one of those listings was a woman named Lydia, dealer in purple cloth from the city of Tyatira, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message, and when she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us into her home, and if you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house, and she persuaded us. Isn't that amazing? This was a church that was generous. Ralph Martin says, we we today might take a lesson to heart that the song of a professed love for the gospel is the measure of the sacrifice. 
Sorry, <clears throat> I'm skipped. Okay, measure of the sacrifice that we are prepared to make in order to help its progress. We rejoice that we have come to know the Savior. What are we doing to make him known to others? Well, we can already see from our text that which Paul was thanking God for. And I think we can thank God for. We can thank God for the good news that takes our sins away through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. How many are thankful to God for that? I'm extremely thankful. We wouldn't even be here apart from that. We can thank God for those who have come before us who have suffered and died to bring the message to us and eventually to others. Do you know the early church, many of them did so at the cost of their lives. How many know that that's true? And by the way, that continues to today. Just in North America, we don't see that kind of persecution. But, you know, in other parts of the world, to bring the good news to another person may cost you your life, his or her life. And people are doing that today. We can thank God for those who participate with them and support them both prayerfully and financially to make it happen. We can thank God for those he has blessed us with in our lives, our church family, our human family, our spouses, our children. Every good and perfect gift comes down from God above. Isn't that the truth? Of course it is. But Paul not only wants to express his gratitude for these partners in ministry, but his expression goes even deeper. And he starts to thank them for his God-inspired affection for them. You know, it's one thing to say thanks. It's another thing to have your heart in it. You know what I mean by that? To really give of yourself. Even though there were difficult situations in the church at Philippi, there were people struggling. There was conflict issues. I've read this book carefully. When you have to write something like, let this mind be in you, you know, be of one mind, you know, oh, by the way, Utica and Synecdoche, get along. Can you imagine how embarrassing it was to have your name written in a public meeting until you put your differences aside? Could you imagine we started doing that today? If I started naming your names and saying, you guys need to get along with each other. How many might be a little embarrassed? You know, that's not very sensitive, Pastor. Well, the Bible does that. Calls us out. I won't do that. You know, in other words, Paul loved these people, I just put, with warts and all. He just loved people. He loved them because God loved them. How many are thankful this morning that God loves you just as you are? How many are thankful that his love to you is unconditional? Even though you and I mess up, God still loves us. How many appreciate that about God? How many appreciate that the one thing about God is he's not going to leave you where, he's, where you're at? That God is not going to leave you and I in an immature state. That God's going to do everything he can to move us towards a state of maturity. That God is going to move us from being very self-centered to becoming very other-centered. How many appreciate that about God? How many know that that's part of the development of an individual? You can tell that people who are emotionally immature, they're very self-centered. How many met people that's all about them? How many know that that's not a pleasant person to be around, right? But you know what? The people that we like to be around are people who have moved beyond themselves and who actually think beyond themselves. They're looking out for other people. They're, they're looking out to help others. Those are the people we connect with, of course. They're more like Christ. He says here in Philippians 1, 7, 8, it is right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart. For whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you sharing God's grace with me. God can testify how I love, I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. 
Wow, that's an important and powerful statement. What is Paul saying? He says, I love you the same way Christ loves you. What kind of love is that? I love you unconditionally. I'll love you no matter what. I'll love you even when you make mistakes. I'll keep loving you. That's a parental love. How many know parents do that with their children? Their kids mess up, the parents keep loving them. They may not agree with their decisions. They may not always like what they do, but the parent keeps loving the child. Isn't that true? Well, if you're a healthy parent, I have to qualify that. You know, Paul saw each one as objects of God's love and affection. He realized the great cost of each one to God. I want you to think about this. Who am I or you, who are you to depreciate someone in the body of Christ? Think of God's love and God's cost for them to be here. I want you to think about this. I don't like that person. God loves them. God died for them. They are costly in God's eyes. Yeah, but they're annoying to me, Pastor. I don't really care. You know? How many know that when you were, how many here, you had siblings? Just raise your hand. How many had siblings? How many know you didn't pick your family? You know what? When I pastor a church, I don't go, okay, God, these are the people I want in my church. I got a list. Unselfish, generous, faithful, mature, loving, got their act together, know the Bible really well. This is what you get dysfunctional, broken, unhappy, grumpy, critical, gossipy. He goes, I'm giving this person to you. Okay. I don't get to pick. God says, I want you to love that person. Okay, I'll work on it. (laughs) I'm being honest. You have to work at it. You know, how many discovered, you know, don't you think marriage is interesting? You're marrying a total stranger. Oh, you, yeah, you think you know them? Wait till you move in with them. <laughs> you know, isn't that true? And what is, what's the big deal about marriage is, you know, we go, oops, I made a mistake. If I would have known this, I'd have never married that person. God goes, no, 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 you can't do that. I put you guys together so that you would have to work on things in your life. And we go, but I don't want to work on this, God. I have to learn to be patient. I have to learn to be forgiving. I have to learn not to be resentful. I have to learn to be kind. I have to learn to be understanding. I have to learn to persevere. I have to learn how to forgive. How many have to figure out that God's teaching all these amazing lessons? Oh, it's so easy to say, I'll just trade it in for a new model. And then, you know what, you know what, they, you know what the person, they, this is an interesting statement. Psychologists say, how come people marry the same kind of person the second time around? Didn't learn the lesson the first time around. You see what I'm getting at? See, I think what we're doing in our culture is we're saying, it's about me and it's what I want. I don't want to have to learn anything. I don't want to have to learn how to lay my life down. I don't, have to, I don't want to have to learn how to die to myself. See, we're struggling with these things. See, this message is really meddling. I know that. But let me just... Uh, point out something it was uh, I'll, I'll give you an idea what kind of sacrificial love is all about there was an issue on focus on the family where there was an excerpt from a letter from a lady who was 36 years old she was a mom and she had 
discovered she had cancer over those advanced stages and they didn't give her long to live. One doctor said, you know, you might as well just enjoy the remaining time of your days, take vacations, go to the beach, you know, that kind of stuff. The second physician said, hey, listen, if you do all of these things, chemo, radiation, you might live two to four years with all the grueling side effects. And this is what she wrote to her three small children. I've chosen to try and survive for you. This has some horrible costs, including pain, loss of my good humor, moods I won't be able to control. But I must try this, if only on the outside chance that I might live one minute longer, and that minute could be the one you need me when no one else will do. Wow. For this, I intend to struggle tooth and nail, so help me God. What does that say to you? At that moment, she says, it's not about me. I'm doing this for you. That's mature love, folks. Love is determined by what it costs us for the sake of another. You know, it's the difference between pity and compassion. Paul Raud writes it this way, where compassion reflects the yearning of the heart to merge and take on some of the suffering. Pity is a control set of thoughts designed to assure separateness. You know, kind of like, the Levite and the priest passing on the other side of the road, you know. Compassion is the spontaneous response of love. Pity, the involuntary reflex of fear. You know, why don't we get involved? Because we don't have enough compassion. Can I just say something? When I'm so full of God's love, I can't help myself but to engage with people. But when I'm full of myself, I don't have room for others. It's about me. And we can't pretend this stuff. It's either there or it's not there. And in the context of stress, you find out what's really inside of you. But let me move on to the third uh, expression. And it simply is seen in his prayers for them. What was Paul's prayer for them? This is a very fascinating prayer. He's praying that they will experience more of God's love. Look at verse 9. And this is my prayer that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. Now, you just think, Lord, I pray that they'll learn how to love. No, no, that's not good enough. Lord, my prayer is that they will learn how to love and understand what true love is so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ of the glory and praise of God. In describing God's kind of love to the Corinthians, what does he write? Love is patient. Love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it's not rude, it's not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Listen, why are relationships falling down today? It's because we're keeping a record. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. In other words, it's not everything goes kind of love. You know, it says, listen, there's some things that are always right and there's some things that will always be wrong. Paul is praying for a love that discerns between what is pure, best, and blameless. This is so unlike our commonly held assumptions about love. Every sin we commit is in essence a violation of love. It depreciates the image of God within us and it usually depreciates the image of God within another person. We are not to love evil. We are not to love the values of our society which foster sin. The prayer is simply that we'll be able to choose the right path, the thing that really matters. 
You know, Madame Guyon, who was a French mystic, wrote something in her autobiography. She listened to this very powerful insight. She said, God gives what is best for us, though not what we most relish or wish for. Think about that thought. Do you believe God loves you this morning? Did he not die for you? He loves you. So whatever he's bringing your way is out of a hand of love. Were people but convinced of this truth, they would be far from complaining all of their lives. People want to direct God instead of resigning themselves to be directed by him. How many know that's the truth? We want to tell God what to do. We want to tell God, this is what I want, rather than saying, God, is this what you want? And I accept it as your gift. They want to show him a way instead of passively following that wherein he leads them. Hence, many souls called to enjoy God himself and not barely his gifts spend all of their lives in running after little consolations and feeding on them, resting there only, making all their happinesses to consist therein. Now, if you say, Pastor, what is she saying here? I'll, I'll, I'll interpret for you. She's basically saying this. What we really want is not God himself. We just want what God blesses us with, the little consolations. And you know how you know that that's your attitude when you're unhappy? Because if you're truly enjoying God, it doesn't matter what's happening in your life. You're enjoying God. And you know how you know you're really enjoying God is when you're not complaining anymore. And some of us in this room, we're really unhappy with our lives. And we're complaining about the way things have turned out. We're not happy about the person we married. We're not happy about the way our kids turned out. I could go on. Let me make a list. We're not happy about the job we have, the money we make. What else do you want to put on the list? Can I put a whole bunch of stuff on that list? And you know all that says to me? And it says to God? It just says this, that you're just not happy with your lot in life. And you're not happy with God himself because he gave you that lot. And God is saying, you've got a puny view of what makes for happiness. Here's the view you need to have. And for some of you, God's talking to you right now. I'm all you need. I am all you need. If you will learn to enjoy me, God is saying to you, you will live above complaint. How many say, I'd like to live above complaint? I'd love to live in perpetual joy. Anybody here say, I'm a candidate. I want to live in perpetual joy. It's real simple. Enjoy God. Enjoy him. Thank him every moment for his love for you. Thank him for everything he's brought into your life. Thank him that he's developing you and making you the man or woman you need to become. He's making you just like himself. He's teaching you what compassion is. He's teaching you what grace is. He's teaching you what understanding is. How many are going, this is so different than what I thought it was going to be? This is so different than what I thought Christianity was going to be. See, I thought what God would do is make my life beautiful. I thought God would come along like Cinderella and make all my dreams come true. But my dreams are from a broken heart. I don't even know what's best for me. And I'm going to argue today, you don't know what's best for you, but God does. And so we need to learn how to be thankful. Well, I'm going to stop because I ran out of time.
but I'm going to have a stand. I think I got the point across. What's the point, Pastor? What are you thankful for? And until we become thankful for one another, and until we get appreciative of people, even though they're not perfect, I have never met a perfect person except Jesus. I have never met a perfect person. I'm not a perfect person. Little, I can, I can, you know, get grumpy at times. I can be irritable. I get upset. Not often, but I can. It's part of it. I got upset one of our staff members. I had to apologize the other day. I was frustrated. I was impatient with this person. I was not loving towards them. You know what? That's so important to God. You know, we run companies. If you're a business person, you run a company. God is looking at how you're running the company, how you're treating the people. It's not about the bottom line at all. It's about the kind of person you are. It's about the person you're becoming. God is looking at all of our relationships and how we're treating each other. That's what he's looking at. You may think you're a super saint, but I'll tell you something. If you have stinky relationships, you are not a super saint. You're a broken person who needs God's grace and who needs to show more grace. Well, I'm really turning this thing. Turn the heat up real fast there, Pastor. Yes, you bet I am. We should be the most joyous people on the planet. We should be the most thankful people on the planet. We should be the most appreciative people on the planet. We should actually tell each other how much we love each other because we're going to spend all of eternity together. We should be encouraging each other. We should be forbearing. That means putting up with people even though they may be struggling. You don't know their background. You don't know the pain in their life. You don't know the way they were raised. You don't know the brokenness in their life. We need to be far more understanding, far more forgiving, far more accepting, far more grateful, far more appreciative. How many are getting a picture? How many, I'm kind of shattering your picture of Christianity a little bit. I'm trying to move you outside of yourself. I'm moving you outside of your box. I want you to just say, God, help me. I got a ways to go. I got a ways to grow. I got to develop. I'm unlike you. When I look at that person that's, you know, says they're a Christian, and I say I'm a Christian, and, you know, we've had differences in our life, and, you know, I think they're an idiot. Come on now. You can be, pretend you're super saints, but you think that person's an idiot. I want you to think of something. Christ died for that person. Christ loves that person. It costs Christ a lot to have that person come into his kingdom. That person is God's child, and he loves that person. And I have a question. Will you love that person? Will you forgive that person? Are we getting a picture? How many are getting a picture? Are you getting this? How many are getting it? You getting it? You understand what I'm saying? Is this important? Do you know what would happen if everyone in this room said, you know what, I've made a decision. I'm just going to start being thankful for people and loving people no matter what they do. You know what's going to happen? We'll just love each other. You won't be able to hold back the people coming into God's kingdom because the greatest need that everyone in this room has is to be loved unconditionally. And that's, that's what we're all looking for. We all want to be understood. Isn't that true? We all want to be loved. We all want to be appreciated. 
And I want you to know God loves you. He understands you. He appreciates you. He's not here to condemn you. I want to see an environment that we have so much grace here that when even people make mistakes, we can say, we forgive you. And it's safe to tell people, I'm broken. And you know what? We don't judge people. We just come alongside and support them and encourage them, lift them up. You know, we can't tell our city we're offering you hope unless we really do offer them hope. And it's found in the person. We say that. It's found in Christ. We have to let Jesus flow through us. Amen. With every head bowed this morning, how many here say, you know what, Pastor? God is speaking into my heart. I need to forgive someone today. Just raise your hand right now. I need to forgive someone. I need to let go of resentment. I need to let go of bitterness. We've all been hurt. There's not one person, tell me, there's not one person in this room has not been hurt. I need to let things go. I need to be more understanding. How many here say, I need to be more understanding. I need to be more supportive. I need to be more honest with myself. Raise your hand, that's you. I need to be more honest with myself. I need to forgive myself even. You know, sometimes we're so, you know, messed up on the inside. It's hard to love people. We don't even love ourselves. I need to let go of some of this garbage. I need to allow Christ's love to flow inside of me so it can flow through me. But you know what? If I have this stuff inside of me, it's like a big blockage. I can't even allow God's love to flow through me. How many say, I want to be more effective in reaching out to my community? Is that you? That's me. I got my hand up. You know what that says? I got to let love flow through me. I got to become a channel of God's love. That means I got to be a clean person. I got to live a blameless life. I, can, I have to rejoice in the truth and I have to avoid evil because it's going to contaminate me and it'll destroy my love potion in my life. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? He who has a clean hand, a pure heart. Father, we ask you to forgive us today. We have disappointed you. We have been critical. We have judged others wrongfully. And maybe even judged them and that, yeah, they were guilty. But we needed to forgive them. Lord, I pray today that we will be so filled with gratitude for who you are and what you've done for us and how you've suffered for so much for us. Lord, help us to learn. Sometimes we have to suffer for others. We have to put up with things. We have to tolerate some behavior. Yeah, I think we have to challenge people's behavior. I understand that. But Lord, when people are trying, Lord, help us to be more gracious. Help us to be more understanding, more forgiving. Lord, may you create an environment where people truly love each other, where love becomes the most predominant manifestation, Lord, in our lives. And may that be amplified and magnified through us as a church family. May we demonstrate your grace and love to people, Father, and we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.